This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with our round table for February of 2017. Like uh, last year, Jay, we're tackling a genre from the 90s that we're not particularly well-educated on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I uh, I learned a lot from the last one, so I'm yeah, last... expecting to have some wisdom dropped on me. Yeah. Last fall, we did the Swing Revival Roundtable to coincide with the Swingers release. Our 20th anniversary of the of the release of that uh, movie, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we learned a lot. We walked away with a deeper knowledge and a better understanding of how that all came to be. So we thought uh, we should tackle another genre. Uh, obviously, we've we've covered a lot of stuff we know. We've done punk, we've done emo, we've done metal, we've done stuff mm-hmm. like that. Stuff we know, we can cover those things uh, with a bit of knowledge on our own end. But we uh, decided to go with something outside of our comfort zone something that uh jay and i i think back in the 90s would have shrugged our shoulders at and said uh whatever whatever this is <laughs> uh maybe now we've become more evolved we're not uh quite as dismissive <clears throat> in our um older age where we need uh music to chill out to uh when we're working at our computers at, at the office um i'm speaking of electronica jay that electronic movement that happened in the late 90s specifically took off in 1997 here in the united states a little bit earlier in in the uk and we'll get into that but uh to help us discuss electronica and what that is and where it came from and what it means to you the listener uh, we've got a couple of guests uh, a newbie and a returning champion from chicago you know him he's been here before he'll be back again Host of the Andy Dare Show, Mr. Andy Dare. Welcome back, Andy. Back with another one of those block rock and beats. I'm glad to be back. Uh, <laughs> good to talk to you guys once again. Representing Chicago House is, that, is what they say. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, yeah, glad to be back. Hey, hi, uh, Jay. Hi, Tim. And uh, nice to meet you, Matt. And the Matt that he's speaking of is our uh, former... Music director at WFAL. You've heard us mention it on probably about 50% of all episodes. So we might as well just, you know, we've already had Keith Jenkins on, our former programming director. We've had Billy Econ, who was our uh, GM at, at the end when we, or actually when we left. And then he was uh, part of the crew. And then the person responsible for all the music while we were there, Mr. Matt Shivadecker. May also know him as Shivy if you're on uh, Twitter and someone that, uh, a lot of us drew a lot of our uh, musical knowledge from. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, folks can follow you, like I said, on uh, Twitter. What is the handle? It is at Shivy, S-H-I-V-V-Y. And that's where uh, you can find the writings that you do for the uh, Austin American Statesman and Austin 360 down in Austin with Jay, where it's, what, like 80 degrees today? It was pretty um, nice today. It was yeah. in the 70s, I think, still. Uh, but uh, it, we we have some pretty bad weather moving in, actually. But it, the temperature-wise, I think we're doing a little bit better than y'all. 
<laughs> yeah, it was mid eighties all weekend and sunny. I'm sorry. Don't apologize. I'm sorry, Ohio. No, <laughs> Sounds no. so sweaty though. I don't know if I'd be yeah. comfortable. That's too warm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it gets a little, it gets a little gross in the summer, but um, yeah. but it's pretty nice here at the beginning of the year when everyone else is like, you know, I'm watching this footage on on the news of people under two feet of snow, and uh, I don't miss it. I don't miss it. No, no. So the reason why I brought this together, as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk about electronic music from the 90s. We had some folks from our uh, Patreon page chime in, and I want to throw out their comments. First of all, I want to thank Patrick Testa, who joined us at Patreon. Brand new subscriber. He's going to get all the access to our previews, to our bonus content, and to upcoming contests that we're going to be having Let's get to the comments, though. Gavin Reed in Australia, he said, Great topic. I feel there are three genres that were born and died in the 90s. Grunge, electronica, and rap rock. Sure, bits <laughs> all still exist, but it's not the same. In the day it was excited, a much exciting, a much-needed, dangerous new sound, I saw and enjoyed The Prodigy, Fat Boy, Crystal Method, Apollo 440, others. Today... A lot of this doesn't hold up. Unlike Rap Rock, which has also dated poorly, it's not fun. Fat of the Land by Prodigy in particular is almost unlistenable. Interesting take on that, Gavin. We'll be getting to that record later. It seems a style that has gravitated to soundtrack fodder. That said, Apollo 440 were incredible live, and Electro Glide in Blue has lost nothing. Mm. Interesting take from Gavin. Always with the hot take down in Australia. <laughs> where it's always warm on the gold coast uh steven says does stabbing westford westward qualify i feel like they certainly incorporated elements of electronica into what they were doing same with gravity kills then again that's probably more on the industrial side of things maybe worth mentioning who knows uh yeah we'll get into that uh, I- <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about one of the important things about this genre, about electronica, is what Gavin mentioned, that the 90s were really defined in a lot of people's minds by grunge. That's the overarching, if you talk about the 90s, you talk about grunge, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. In actuality, it's a much more complicated decade than that. Grunge is really the first two or three years, and then it explodes into a whole bunch of different things, and electronica in like the same way that disco sort of exploded in the late to mid seventies. It's really started as from what I'm gathering and and reading to get myself educated on this from the eighties in terms of uh, house music in Chicago and techno and Detroit acid house and a a whole other ambient music from the UK in the seventies and eighties. It seems like it is a culmination of, a disparate group of uh, electronic movements from around the world all sort of merging and and gaining some sort of popularity in the 90s. Anybody have, I want to just throw this out there, why the 90s were the era as opposed to the 80s or even the early 90s? Why the late 90s were the, and especially 97, why this was the time for all of these bands which we're going to be talking about or artists to rise up and become 
not just underground artists that were successful in terms of playing raves and clubs and stuff like that, but actually start selling records, getting singles on the radio, getting videos on MTV. Anybody have any thoughts on what was special or, or what was happening at this time that might have hap- might have helped all of this to rise up to that level? Uh, well, I think it was because all these big bands were starting to incorporate the electronica style, like... You had U2 with their pop album. You had David Bowie with Earthling, Madonna, Ray of Light. Even Rolling Stones with Bridges to Babylon were incorporating like beats and stuff like that. And I think the moment it hit me was when Smashing Pumpkins released the song I from the Lost Highway soundtrack. Okay. And that was all drum machines and synths. And I it was almost unrecognizable. And I go, okay, wow, this is definitely a new wave for uh, 1997 or 8, you know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that from that, that the sort of – they sort of paved the way for electronic artists to sort of break out on their own by sort of being subtly introduced by other artists. That's yeah, you know something's big when, like, the big bands that don't need to sell records anymore, they've already made their name, but now they're incorporating a new style. Kind of like how Rolling Stones were incorporating disco in the late 70s when they've been around for 15 years already. Right, so, with, yeah, yeah, with uh, Some Girls album. Yeah. Interesting. Matt, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think it definitely uh, the, the radio and MTV components. I, I think are huge. I mean, I, I not only uh, you know came from the college radio uh, world with you guys, but um, then I, by '97 I was already interning at 97X, aka WOXY, where I then spent the next like 15 years of my life, um, and I was paying a lot of attention to you know what was going on at commercial radio already at that point and so you know like andy mentioned you know you too had a number one hit at alternative radio with disco tech and uh that spring depeche mode with the ultra album mm-hmm. um and yeah i mean like that you know david bowie experimenting with drum and bass like uh these things like so, sort of started to open the door um but you also already had mtv um programming amp on the weekends which was like a late night electronic video um, experience really uh, such an interesting uh, series that that launched a couple of compilations um, and you know they were putting you know artists onto nationwide cable like Aphex Twin and Underworld and Future Sound of London and you know all of these groups that were just already kind of starting to to bubble up and and I think that in general at that point uh, alternative radio already was like not sure where they were going to go they were starting to lose a little bit of steam from um the grunge movement and so i think you had programmers who were a little uh feeling a little more adventurous and willing to sort of see you know what what could work and there's no question that that happened big time in 97 i mean k-rock los angeles had the chemical brothers on their annual weenie roast event in the (laughs) summer and by Christmas that year, Live 105 in San Francisco did Electronica Hanukkah with Crystal <laughs> Method, The Sneaker Pimps, DJ Shadow, tons of artists like that. So, I mean, you saw these big alternative rock heritage stations that were embracing beats and making it making it cool. Andy mentioned at the beginning uh, in passing uh, the block rock and beats. And I want to talk about that was the, I think, 
the first major album that came out come out in 97 which is the chemical brothers dig your own hole came out in april of 97 and it was preceded by a couple of singles like uh, setting sun that came out with no gallagher yeah with no gallagher which i think was a key element that was the lead single released in september of 96 in the uk and you know if you're an oasis fan you're in between uh what's the story morning glory which is what 95 and then uh is be here now. Did that come out in 97 or 98? I, I'm drawing up. Summer 97. Summer 97. So this is just before that comes out. that setting sun it made people curious i mean i think people who would not have otherwise um gone and and picked up this record certainly uh, you know you here you have this track this sort of uh beatles inspired track um that has noel gallagher on vocals and that it, it's it's really quite a bit different than than most of the the rest of the album but it certainly piqued a lot of people's interest. Although, interestingly enough, I was I was looking up and trying to find. Um, I know that in that moment, a lot of the key alternative stations in the country were playing "Setting Sun," but it doesn't appear as though it really made much impact on the charts, the radio charts um, for for the format at the time. But I, quite interestingly block rock and beats really did i mean that song which you would sort of think would be the opposite but block rock and beats actually um really got some solid airplay across the country um and i'm sure a big part of that was uh the video getting played as well i mean those those things kind of piggybacked off each other um in, in that moment in time well yeah and i wanted to get to that because i think the the key with this album and the albums going forward is is that the song length is radio friendly. Whereas if you go back and you listen to maybe some earlier albums by like the Orb or Orbital or you know some other electronic artists who aren't necessarily electronica but they're electronic early '90s, they're seven nine minute long songs. They're not radio friendly songs. A lot of them aren't built around a chorus. Whereas yeah. these songs. Setting Sun, Block Rock and Beats. We'll get into the other albums that came out. They're very like radio friendly, and they're very also um, a, a thing that I noticed starting to happen, which was the integration of this sort of music into other uh, pop culture aspects, which is like um, commercials. Uh, MT, not MTV. Um, ESPN would start using this to like underneath their um, highlights. And they would use it as uh, the bumpers going to the from commercials and stuff like that. You started to see uh, where it would just be like boring instrumental instrumental music that they would just normally use. All of a sudden, they were using like electronica music because it's energetic. It's at like 120 to 150 beats per minute, so it's perfect for like high energy, you know, sports action like basketball and 
that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I think that Moby took notes. He's like, I want to make a million dollars in 1999. So let's. Uh, I like where I like where this uh, style is yep. going. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that's one aspect that I don't. I don't. Maybe I didn't recognize at the time, but there, there was this, all this sort of cross pollination of electronic music, sort of branching out into not just being about radio and MTV, but getting subtly getting into like commercials and, and all that sort of stuff where, you know, in the early nineties and even to some extent, even uh, into the two thousands, there was always this amongst the sort of more rock crowd that you don't sell your song to commercials. That's selling out. And that whole concept. Whereas now, I mean, if you're going to be a band and you're going to make any money, you have to find a Volkswagen commercial. that's going to you know, play yeah. your song. Well, and certainly there was just a there was a moment there where the sound kind of permeated everything. I mean, not just commercials and the television beds, but I mean, you couldn't watch a movie trailer without hearing something like the Crystal Method, or you know, right, I mean, yeah. it just it it just worked for for everything. And it works so well with visuals, right? Because it can be interpreted in so many ways that when you put a visual with it, it just takes on a whole new meaning depending on yep. whatever it is you're looking at. Whereas rock songs, they have a very specific kind of feel and it doesn't always work out that way. They kind of overpower the visual sometimes. You had a lot of soundtracks that took advantage of the style too, like Spawn, mm -hmm. uh, the Saint, yeah, the Saint soundtrack was big. I remember um, trying to think of more at this time, but yeah, it was definitely something that fit well with the movies and commercials and visual aspect. Well, what's interesting about the Spawn soundtrack is it's basically a parallel to the Judgment Night sound, Judgment Night soundtrack from 1993, which where they paired up uh, rock bands with hip hop artists. Sure. And Spawn basically did the same thing, except they swapped out the hip hop artists for the for the um, electronic artists. So it's it capitalized on basically the exact same setup. I think it might have even they might have had some crossover with artists and who were on both of them. Uh, Believe it or not, the Spawn soundtrack just got reissued on vinyl uh, this last week overseas. I, it's probably not uh, headed our way anytime soon, but there is an import uh, on the Music on Vinyl label um, that has put that out. And of course, that had the... Um, the big radio hit from that was the uh, Crystal Method and Filter collaboration of Trip Like I Do, where they, they took the Crystal Method song and you know added added vocals there are some terrifying combinations on this record slayer it, and atari teenage riot now your imagination I mean, in a wild that is pretty incredible i'm not gonna yeah. lie yeah silver chair makes an appearance on the record well you have you know whenever those sort of things come out it was just like oh who is on the label that we mm. can that we can explain now i mean you know some of these were definitely sort of far flung but yeah, uh, there's some silver chair and incubus were definitely in there and corn. Uh, yeah, that, it's, uh, corn and the dust brothers, Bobby butthole surfers, uh, the aforementioned stabbing westward with wink, Manson with 808 state, Tom Morello with the prodigy. This is quite an interesting list of disparate talents, right? And how, I don't. How have we not reviewed this record, Tim? Well, <laughs> no, we haven't really. gotten to it yet, and I don't think any of that lives up to. Uh, the Judgment Night soundtrack, which produced the excellent Teenage Fan Club De La Soul combo of Fallen. That is a great tune. So, but we'll get to it eventually, Jay. Don't worry. We won't uh, We won't leave that one hanging. So, overall, revisiting God. Dig Your Own Hole, 
Did you guys think that that album holds up as a repeat listen? I know the Chemical Brothers have actually continued to, you know, be pretty successful. They're not like some of these bands that have just fallen off and 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 not put out new and interesting music. The I particularly like the the Hannah soundtrack that they did. Um, but let me go around everybody. Do you how do you like Dig Your Own Hole? Uh, Twenty years later, Matt, I'll start with you. I mean, I'm a huge Chemical Brothers fan, and I think that this is probably their best album. Um, it's it's something that has never really gone uh, completely out of rotation for me. Um, their entire catalog just got reissued on vinyl, actually, so I've been uh, picking some things up. And um, I, I mean, I, I love I love this record. I I think it's especially of all the different things you had sort of uh, brought up to discuss. Um, this is probably the my favorite okay andy what do you think about revisiting dig your own hole it's a great album they're a great group and it's funny i just turned on my uh my friend who's a big fan of prog rock and uh (laughs) psychedelic rock from the 60s and 70s is like what is this chemical brothers i go you don't know Turn it, I, we turned it on, and he was a fan immediately. I mean, it, it's so much in debt to Pink Floyd and the Beatles' White Album and other classic rock stuff that it's almost it's it has very little to do with current electronic music. Jay, I know you weren't listening to Chemical Brothers back in '97. <laughs> listening well, to it now, what do you think? I, well, I think this is a record. There's several songs in here I know. I was alive. I was a human being at the time. <laughs> Like, there, you know, uh, I knew Setting Sun, I knew Block Rock and Beats. Uh, there were a couple other hooks on the record I hear, heard here and there through different placements and whatnot. So uh, it was one of the ones uh, that we revisited uh, based on your recommendation for the show that stood out to me, I think, in that classic rock vein, like Andy mentioned, in terms of it, it just has a has a bit of a more of a performance feel than some of the other stuff that we listen to. And um, I don't know there's like a human element to it that either through the samples they use or the sort of the bass uh, performances or the vocals that are on it that just help it make it more accessible for just a general rock fan. So it feels human. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I, I saw them in Chicago for the album that followed this called Surrender. And uh, Fat Boy Slim was the opening act. And he, he literally just did a DJ set, which was, you know, which was great. I mean, I, I remember really enjoying his set. But I was like, oh, this, this show is just going to sort of be uh, like going to a club, basically. But then the Chemical Brothers came out with more gear than I've ever seen on stage <laughs> any at any point before or since and while obviously they're not playing traditional instruments up there they were building the tracks uh or you know from start to finish on stage with just an enormous assortment of of electronic gear and it it was really fascinating to watch i've always wondered about going to see a you know artist like that whether it would just be like standing watching a guy with a laptop or not but that sounds interesting well you know undoubtedly that happens a lot, but with the right. Chemical Brothers, there's there's a lot more going on, and I think you know certainly they you know and now especially you know there's everyone has to have just like a lot of visuals to their presentation, um, but um, they are doing more than just uh, setting up a laptop up there. Like they they're really kind of reconfiguring the beats and uh, their their loops and stuff live. 
It's not like Dead Mouse where he puts his mouse hat on and then pushes <laughs> play and then uh, checks his Twitter feed for an hour and a half. <laughs> I, I think just because they're they're a little more old school, so I think they still. Uh, I mean, granted, I, I guess to be fair, I have not seen them live since, uh, so I don't know how it's changed over the years. But in that moment, I was I was really impressed with how they put together a live show. Let's move on to the next album, which I picked. Chemical Brothers to go first because the single came out first. So it was like the first uh, shot, I guess you'd say. The second album I want to talk about is a bit different. Daft Punk, Homework. It's a little bit different style than Chemical Brothers. I'm, I, you know, when I revisit these albums in the same way that like people, you can say, well, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, they were all grunge bands. But then when you actually listen and dissect them, you go, well, these are wildly different bands. Nirvana was a much different band than Pearl Jam was and then Soundgarden was. And sort of lumping all these bands together as electronica is, is kind of doing the same disservice. Whereas Daft Punk seems to draw from a much different pool of influences. I don't know if it's because they're... Um, did somebody just slap the bass? What was that? Sorry. <laughs> I'm playing the uh, the uh, Seinfeld bass over here. Sorry. Yeah, what's up there? Kramer? Sorry, that was just my my mic. <laughs> I, I won't touch it again. Okay. So I don't know if it's because they're from France and there's a, a long history of French house music and um, sort of a, a different sort of take on this dance or, or electronic music. I think it's interesting that uh, this is another band even though they're, you know, this was such a short-lived sort of, you know, genre in the 90s, this is a band that has remained not only influential for what they did then, but is extremely relevant now, are still putting out extremely relevant albums. Um, they're involved with relevant artists of the day. And they just played the Grammys last night. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the French Robots and this album. In revisiting homework i i realized that i didn't really listen to this album at all when it came out i only knew the two singles which were defunct defunct and around the world but in going and listening to it it's a much diverse much more diverse record than i was anticipating jay i want to start with you uh had you ever listened to any doff punk other than maybe the stuff that was on the radio uh i had only really heard the stuff on the radio but um I recognize back when this came out that I feel like it was the first time we heard like 80s nostalgia in any way or shape or form. I mean, not to say they weren't doing original stuff, but there's definitely like a an early 80s, late 70s kind of funk vibe to some of the the bass lines and some of the beats and the analog synth. And there was definitely like that feeling of that era of dance and like electronic music. So I felt like that was the first time we, anybody had really done that, um, which now it's, you know, there's tons of acts doing it. Right. Um, so, so that really stood out to me at, at the time as being um, very different, very unique. Yeah. 
Andy, Matt, thoughts on homework? Uh, for me, you know, I this record really kind of blew my mind when it came out, and I I got really into it. But at the same time, I think um, my my resistance to this album has always been in the extreme repetition. Um, I mean, I think some of the songs are just absolute classics, and I love, as you know, I love dance music. But, you know, as Around the World goes on for seven-plus minutes, um, it's one of those cases where I almost prefer the single version. Um, I, I, I need, like, maybe the slightly tighter uh, edit. Um, but there's a lot of deep cuts um, in this in this record, too. That And, and some of the almost borderline interstitials um like oh yeah coming towards uh, the end of the record like that is that's one that i always kind of um wished was a little longer um because there's they there's some really really cool instrumentation and in, in beats in some of these tracks i feel like it's a good start for them i think uh yeah the, the like i think their sound would totally blossom actually in this decade with uh, their 2013 album random excess memories where they're working with Giorgio Moroder. They have an analog, warm, full band sound to their music nowadays. And uh, this is an interesting beginning, a lot of radio classics. But yeah, it is repetitive, and it's not quite up there with uh, the Chemical Brothers' Dig Your Own Hole for me. Interesting. Okay. And yet, we can certainly also say that I think the reason that this got on the radio at all was because of the incredible videos. Uh, Spike Jones directed the defunct video with the just, you know, I think for anyone who was watching MTV in that time with the uh, giant, uh, the dog walking around New York City with his uh, boombox and uh, finding love or trying to find love. Um, and then Michelle Gondry's incredible clip for Around the World. Like those videos in the, in the era still of the buzz clip, um, <laughs> like really helped to um, put those into the mainstream, and you know, to a certain extent, I think that radio just you know they had to kind of get on board. I was kind of surprised when on this record, there's stuff that's super accessible, like Defunk, which is just a great like groove, right? And then there's other stuff that's really noisy and kind of difficult to get into, whether it be like you said, Shiv, really long or just kind of harsh i was kind of surprised by the i was expecting most of the record to be more of what we hear on the radio but there's some moments that get pretty challenging on this record i mean i think the big thing is that they really were not um they weren't intending to make a record initially um you know it's like i I think it sort of came together over time but it did the, the them create starting to create music they were not necessarily headed towards the full length album but that's you know that's where they that's where they ended up hmm interesting so what was the original we were just recording songs for to to do like just singles and club singles and stuff like that or was there i mean did well, they have was, an actual band um well i mean they actually came out of playing in bands i i do believe but i just i think that in that moment especially yeah, I mean, there was all kinds of interesting electronic stuff happening in France. And, yeah, I mean, I think initially they were releasing uh, 12 inches, you know, and not necessarily um, going for 
more than that, but then they they kind of became the subject of a bidding war, and uh, you know Virgin ended up winning you know worldwide uh, rights to to their uh, to, you know to signing them. But that you know once that process happened, it you know then they really focused on making the record. And I can tell you, Tim, I don't know if you went that year, and you certainly wouldn't have gone to the same show, um, but opening night. CMJ 1997, I turned up at the Rosalind Ballroom for what became, I I almost feel like now is one of those like mythical CMJ shows because it was Fluke, The Sneaker Pimps, Doft Punk, Death in Vegas, The Crystal Method, and Aphex Twin. Wow. No, I did not go that year. The year I went... Riccardi took me to the Roxy, and the orbital was spinning with Bjork. Oh wow! wow. Nice. Okay. Is it is it pronounced Daft or Daft? Uh, is it was it any way you want to? Depends go on with what it. country you're in. Daft sounds German. There's Daft <laughs> punk. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. We'll have to ask the linguists afterwards. I guess Chicago guy says Daft. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I'd make a Boston joke here, but I'm still mad about the Super Bowl, so I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> Let's talk about the most successful album of all these. You guys know what that is? Most successful in terms of albums sold? Oh, it's definitely the Prodigy. Yes, 10 million copies of the Fat of the Land, the third globally, globally, globally but yes. By the uh, by, the third album from the Prodigy, it was it it actually went to number one in the uh, United States Billboard 200 chart. Um, it's gone double platinum in the United States. Two million have sold uh, in the United States, and uh, produced three singles: Firestarter, Breathe, and Smack My Bitch Up. Let's talk when about it, this record. When it was number one, OK yes. Computer was number twenty-one. And that was as high as OK Computer ever got. It came out that the same day. That blows my mind. Same day, I bought both at the same time. Wow. And you've revisited them equally, right? <laughs> That's range for you, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so of of all the bands, this is the one that, to me, uh, has the most lasting visual component in the same way that the videos for Daft Punk were, you know, by Michael Gondry and, and Spike Jones were memorable. There were also memorable aspects to uh, the uh, the videos by uh, the Prodigy, as well as they had a visual element in terms of they sort of looked like a, you know, the Sex Pistols on, you know, and Oasis had a kid on ecstasy, sort of thing going on. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to. No, I thought like it was a that. band at the time. Did you guys think it was a band? Yeah, because they they presented themselves with a front man, like they had a yeah. A, right. a key person that you could recognize and Keith Flint. Yep. Well, and he joined for that record prior to that. Um, you know, the vocals were more, uh, samples and guests. And then he, uh, so at least, especially for these, all these singles, you know, he was front and center. He was oh. there for the one previous to the music for the jilted generation, which is another, which is actually a, okay. a better album, a better full length album. And that got them, uh, kind of discovered by American audiences, because they it was featured on the film Hackers, which is oh, pretty yeah. important to Electronica as well. That movie, Hackers, and Angelina Jolie's career. 
Isn't that movie very representative of what the future turned out to be like? <laughs> sort of like uh, Johnny Mnemonic and then Strange Days and all those movies about the future from the 90s. That Judge Dredd. Judge Dredd, yes. <laughs> and the Judge Dredd reboot. No, in, in listening back to this record, I have to say I, I have to agree with Gavin in the sense that I don't feel like it holds up as well. Um, maybe it's the vocals that turn me off. If a lot of this maybe had been instrumental, <laughs> I would have liked it a lot better. Um, but there's something about the vocals that really kind of grate on me this time around. Maybe it's also because I'm in my forties and I don't want to listen to a guy going, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know. Maybe it's just, it's <laughs> me sneering. Aging. Yeah. It's scary. And I just want to go back to bed. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I still kind of get excited uh, hearing Firestarter. I just I just think that it is uh, a classic track. I really do. I mean, I'm not this record on the whole does not really hold up for me. Um, but that that track can still get it. I mean, it, par- partially, you know, maybe you know, I was such a huge Breeders fan, still am a huge Breeders fan. Um, so to kind of be built around the Cannonball sample um, there, uh, that... Sure that like the first time I heard it I loved it And then, yeah, I mean, I actually saw them, they they headlined Lollapalooza that year, at least uh, in the Cincinnati stop of the tour. And so, you know, I saw them live. Um, I, guess, I guess that was the following summer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it. in that moment, I loved it. Now, a little less so. <laughs> that main guy, Liam Howlett, is the producer, the main talent behind the band. He's a super... He's an interesting guy with a lot of interesting sounds throughout the years. But what they did to shoot themselves in the foot was they waited seven years to follow the album up. And by that, by 2004, no one was interested anymore. No, and no I think cared. that one didn't even go wood in the hood. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it, it's an interesting uh, yeah time in my life, 1997. And it sounds so much like that time listening to this. You know, it, it very much... The did not, it's not timeless. It does not age well, but it does paint a very specific picture of two, uh, 1997. Has anybody heard Gene Simmons cover of Firestarter from the solo <laughs> record? I, really? I have not. Yeah, it's 2004, uh, 2004 solo record, which is entitled Asshole. He uh, <laughs> covered Firestarter. We need to check that I out. That. I can't wait to not hear that. <laughs> How do you come also, up with the album title? No, I'm joking. Yeah. Also, according to uh, Wikipedia, on his album, that features Dave Navarro. So it really just can only get better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That is a, a murderer's row of assholes. Um, <laughs> now, I, 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 in looking through the, you know, obviously there's a lot of samples and stuff that are used. You mentioned the, the, the breeder sample for Firestarter. There's also some 
other people that are listed as writers, and I'm not sure if these are people that they actually worked with or if they're just samples that they used. But on the and I, you can set me straight on this, Matt. But uh, on Trek Nine, Climatize, uh Tim Taylor is 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 listed as a writer. Are they referencing Tim Taylor from Brainiac? Uh, I have to admit, I am not sure. But if if so, that has to be a sample. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, this came out before he passed away, so they would have recorded it well, you know, a year or so before that. So it would have been around the time when we just actually just reviewed the album Hissing Prigs came out. So it's entirely oh, yeah. possible he could have worked with them, but I would imagine it was probably more of a sample. But, um, yeah, like... Uh, Danita Sparks uh, is is uh, gets a writing credit um, from L Seven on uh, the Republica singer too, right? Yeah, what's her name? Um, People like you just fuel my fire. That's a good, that's another anthem too. This is it's got a lot of anthems actually. This album, um, the guy from Kula Shaker is on yeah, it. Yeah, Crispin Mills, and then. Um, Cool Keith from Ultramagnetic MCs and Dr. Octagon, a really talented rapper who's way, who thinks way outside of the box. He got his uh, for Smack My Bitch Up. And Tom Morello plays on this, on uh, No Man Army, which is a bonus track, I guess. I think, yeah. It's one of the bonus tracks from the Japanese release. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of, in, in terms of this one, sampling from... I guess more well-known artists. I feel like this, when I listen to the, I know that there's sampling happening with, you know, Daft Punk and Chemical Brothers, but I don't know what they're doing. I don't, I don't pick up on any of those. It's not, you know, I'll be missing you by Puff Daddy sort of thing. Whereas (laughs) with this, there's a much more like a bigger nod to, yeah, more on the nose. So I think we're all in agreement that this doesn't, this does not hold up as a, as a, maybe a song or two is a is a fun listen but uh besides that it's it's not up there with um dig your own hole check out their hits compilation their hits compilation shows it's a double disc and it shows their early 90s stuff and uh yeah they're more than just the fat of the land band i, I it's worth investigating i'll say okay and then the uh the fourth record i wanted to check out which was released in uh august in the US of 97 and then september is the uh Crystal Method, who were from Las Vegas, and their na- their album title is is Vegas, and this spawned uh, a couple of singles. The first one being uh, "Trip Like I Do," which was then, as was mentioned, sort of reinterpreted by Filter as "Can You Trip Like I Do" for the Spawn soundtrack. And there was also "Busy Child," was the single, which I think got it's seven and a half minutes long on the album, but I think for the single, it's a bit shorter. Which fe- oh, yeah. features I mean, the, a sample of it, Erica B and Rakim on it. I mean, pretty much, you know, any anytime you you working down to the radio edit, you're looking at like three and a half minutes, <laughs> more or less.
And this is one where when you look at where this got used, you're talking about it was in the Gone in 60 Seconds soundtrack. It was in the movie The Replacement Killers. Uh, they used songs for um, FIFA 98 on uh, <laughs> on uh, mm. Sega. I mean, this was pushed in every possible way to you know get the music out there, which is why I think you know in listening to this, this isn't necessarily like other than the singles, it's not stellar. It's not like the the greatest thing I've ever heard. But man, they really ran with getting it out there in in every possible i mean even still into the 2000s it was used in commercials for uh, victoria's secret and the mazda miata and it was used in uh, lincoln commercials and um, it was used in gran turismo 2 soundtrack i mean just tons of placements for this record and for this band so actually listen to the music what did you guys think about uh revisiting something that has Maybe I never even realized it's permeated so much of pop culture uh, since it's been released. Uh, Andy, I'll start with you. I'd say good A&R guy, not a great album. This is the only American act that we're discussing tonight. And it's, right. I don't know, it's just, I, I, I did, I have the album. It's just repetitive. It's not super inventive. It's it's not really great dance music. It's not great rock music. It's not great trip hop or anything like that. It's it's to sell Mazda Miatas and that's about it. I don't know. Not <laughs> not a huge fan of the Crystal Method. They would have an album called Tweak End in two thousand one that would have a cool collaboration with Scott Weiland. But uh this one not really doing much for me. All I mean right. it's it's great music for running your closing credits over. True. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> when I put on High Roller, I was like, "I this was in the closing credits of a movie. I have to figure <laughs> out what it was." Like I can see the type scrolling by. Uh, for the movie Push, with uh, with Chris Evans, and no um, one saw that. Dakota Dakota Fanning. It was like the we're we're going to make an X Men movie, but we can't call it X Men and we can't call them mutants. But it's basically X Men and mutants. That's what that movie was. <laughs> Shiv, what did you think about revisiting this? I'm not going to lie. I did not re-listen to this record. Um, <laughs> I I have, you know, the original uh, City of Angels 12-inch for Busy Child. I always really loved that track, especially uh, there's an Uber Zone remix on the 12-inch that's really hot. Um, was uh, was always a fan. I, I never really got into this as a full album, and... Um, I mean, I just I, I think it definitely has some standout tracks, and like you said, I mean, for for a, a spell, they were pretty inescapable. Um, and you know, they the the guys from the Crystal Method have have really continued to make music, and 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 they they milked this record with an anniversary edition. Um, you know, it's they've they've done all right for themselves, but um, I, I was never uh, too big of a fan. Fair enough. Jay, did you revisit this record? I did. This is when you said we were doing electronica. This is pretty much what popped in my head, right? This is the stereotype of what electronica is, at least in my mind. So, you know, it mapped to that. Um, and then, yeah, I could, I could, all of the familiarity made me think of commercials and movies and trailers and <laughs> just the sort of the, the marketing of the whole thing, which, yeah, didn't really hold up very well. 
Fair enough. I'm going to agree with you. I think the singles are good, but that's about it. And it's uh, it's not up there with uh, Dig Your Own Hole or, or Homework in terms of being an overall satisfying listen. Um, there were a couple other albums, and I'll just throw them out there. We could just briefly touch on them. One of them, which I'm still a huge fan of, um, I discovered it when it came out, and it's never really been followed up properly, but it's uh, New Forms by Ronnie Size and Represent. I think it won the Mercury Prize when it came out. It did, yeah. Yeah. I, I That record to me still sounds like it's from the future. Like the samples and the way that they're used and the use of the, um, what sounds like a, like an upright bass for the, the bass lines. Um, oh, especially in brown paper bag. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of the nevermind of drum and bass, kind of. In in a lot of ways, yeah, I guess that's that's a good way to it's, put it. It's the archetypal drum and bass album, and it's a double album, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's long. It's a long record. And it I don't think it caught on here in the United States because it does, it's not single-oriented in the same way that these bands are. I think that's um, probably... You know, Brown Paper Bag was the the one single that if it did anything here, um, it was that. The the video did get some MTV airplay. I I know uh, we used to play it on Woxie. Um, Interestingly, the the version that's on the album is really long and instrumental, but they cut a new version with a vocal um, that was what was released as a single. So Brown Paper Bag um, and Watching Windows um, were the two... Uh, I mean, at least, especially in the UK, like big, big singles. And I feel like uh, one of the artists that is kind of not on the periphery uh, because she's a extremely relevant artist in the 90s, uh, but Bjork is playing around with electronic music. Yeah, homogenic. It touched a little bit on post, but really homogenic is the is the key one. Well, that's that came out in 97 and just right. like, you know, yeah, she was doing... She was doing stuff that, you know, no no one else. I mean, you could say that for her entire career, but um, you know, there there are sounds on that record, uh, which she worked with Mark Bell from LFO on Homogenic. Um, so it does have some, you know, maybe more uh, straightforward tracks, more like dance tracks, like uh, Alarm Call. Um, but yeah, there's some. Uh, there's there's a lot of interesting experimentation on that record. There's a lot going on, yeah. I feel like Radiohead's Kid A wouldn't have been the same if Bjork didn't put out Homogenic, something just like super hard to get through, but a lot of interesting textures instead of focusing just on the songs. It's a complete production. Well, and that yeah, it's, an inc- me, it's an incredible record. That leads me to uh, one that I think you mentioned in Kid A, um, I don't know if they've specifically referenced this artist, but I hear it in some of the like the broken beat aspects of that record, which is Aphex Twin. And mm. um, yeah, is it uh, is it come come to Daddy that came out that year? What is what is the album that the Aphex Twin album that came out in? So that was the Richard D. James album. That's but the it. Come to Daddy because of its truly frightening video <laughs> that did get some late night airplay. Um, that that did get an EP release with even extra tracks and some remixes, so um, that was that was definitely uh, permeating the consciousness there in '97, and I think scaring a lot of people. Do you guys recall Twelve Angry Viewers on MTV? 
<laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> nice. Wait, what was that? That was on there? It was, they just had like 12 people just hanging out, and they'd show a new video from an artist, and then they all had to give a quick review about it, I believe. And then the one that everybody agreed upon would be like the video of the week. And, and they would put uh, it into rotation, yeah. Yeah, put it into heavy rotation, and I believe Come to Daddy was on there. Also, Fatboy Slim's Going Out of your head or going out of my head was a, a big hit on there on 12 angry viewers but it's funny every once in a while you'll see you'll find a cd at a used record store and there will be a feature a featuring sticker that says as seen on mtv's 12 angry viewers that's hysterical i have not wow. thought of that in so long but you're out it, it fits into this timeline perfectly because the first time i saw the video for bjork's yoga it was on 12 angry viewers very 97 yeah yeah so when i push past a little bit back or past 97 um we get into i, f- I feel like it sort of peaked there and then you get into 98 with the fat boy slim album um which is produces the two singles um from you come a long way baby which is praise you and then uh the rockefeller skank which is in what teen movie is that in is that um she's all that or I don't remember what scene that is. There's Can't hardly scene, wait. Can, is it? Can, it's one where they have a dance at a like a school. It's like a high school dance, and everybody knows how Still to do the dance down. immediately. <laughs> I think it's she's all that because I think it's like Freddie Prince Jr. and and the guy from Fast and Furious who died who like have a dance off possibly. Uh, what's it, what was his name? I can't even remember his name. Um, anyway, Paul Walker. Paul Walker. Yes, they have the they have the dance off over Rachel Lee Cook. Okay, then that's she's all that. Okay, good. My brain isn't completely going. She was indeed all that. She was, which also feels features an African wig song in that album or in that uh, movie too, which is uh, neither here nor there. Anyway, is there a direct line between the electronica of the late '90s and what we've seen in the last ten, fifteen years with the rise of EDM, electronic dance music? Um, I feel like maybe there's a bit of a connection, but the the stuff that's going on in the last ten years or so uh, with what you know Andy mentioned, like Dead Mouse and 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 other artists, I guess Skrillex would be in that same Steve Aoki, Steve Aoki, yes. Um, all stuff is completely foreign to me. It, that seems much more. I don't know. It seems less performed and more like pushed play yeah, yeah exactly that's that's what i'm looking for but um, it's huge it's it's way bigger than than this stuff ever ever was at least in america i mean we're we're in a point where for the millennials um those edm artists are the festival headliners um that's that's who they're going to see they're certainly not going to see rock bands right unless they're going to ocella it's true, but I think it's beginning to lose steam a little bit. Um, with every time where dance music takes over, there's a little bit of a pushback. Like, true. In, like in 1979 in Chicago, we had the disco demolition, where uh, this radio DJ got fired because they switched their format to all disco. So he made a revolution, or he did a thing where at at Comiskey Park, you bring a disco record and you get in for a dollar, and then they blew them all up in between the double header. 
and it just was chaos. There was, you know, looting. There was they had to cancel the second game because of the chaos on the field. But so that was a thing where it's just a pushback against the dance music. I think like there's a pushback against electronica in the ninety in the late nineties where then you had the white stripes come. You know, just a guy with a guitar and a girl with drums, and they were the next big thing. You know, so there's always a little bit. You go from the dance thing, then you go to the raw rock thing. So who who's going to be that now? I don't know, but uh, that's a good point. I think yeah, there, it seems to have softened. Like the the reaction to disco from the rock crowd was almost violent in a way. Uh, not well, just in... it was it was incredibly racist and homophobic. Right, that's yeah. what they're saying now. But and. Yeah. and and in electronica, it didn't seem it seemed more well. I don't like this. It, it didn't seem to be driven by some sort of ideological hatred. It was much. I don't know. I, I don't remember being at places where people were like getting angry that the Chemical Brothers were being played or what have you. I remember <laughs> there was a lot of people like saying, uh, "Oh, you know, guitars aren't cool anymore." And there's a you know the famous. Not famous, but there's the line in the LCD sound system where they traded in their guitars for keyboards and then their keyboards back for guitars. Um, that sort of idea sort of happened in like 97 where, oh, guitars don't matter anymore. It's all about keyboards and samplers. But that didn't really, you know, hold up for too long. But I think the pushback now is just in terms of it's almost it's like eating its own tail. Like there's only so much market and so many DJs and so much free time for for festivals where these things work i th- i think that maybe it's just that the the whole market is saturated it's it's finally reached the point where it became so successful that it sort of burned itself out not that it was reacted against but it just sort of had nowhere to go i think the interesting thing that's happening right now is that uh the EDM artists are more fully integrated into what is happening at pop radio than than it was in the late 90s um you know these these artists that we have been talking about today um really kind of broke through uh, a a format at the radio that that they really truly didn't fit into but that uh, sort of made their way into it despite the <laughs> despite the fact that there weren't a lot of um rock elements to be had but now um i mean the sound of pop radio it's like if it isn't uh, hip hop leaning it is dance leaning there's very there's very few uh you know rock based artists and tracks that are actually breaking through to top 40 right now and so i think that that just is it's very different than it was in that moment where in the late 90s you know top 40 was still such a hodgepodge you know the the things that became big hits at alternative radio would would cross over to top 40 and i don't think you have that as much right now right and we're also dealing with a completely different uh, structure structure because there's how important is radio to breaking artists now as it was in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s as opposed to people you know doing stuff on the internet with you know sound spotify and and itunes and title and breaking artists that way or or breaking artists through you know well well, this stuff is big but isn't this stuff big through like it's kind of in untraditional places i i see it like if you go into itunes and you search music podcasts the top 100 music podcasts, like literally from one to a hundred will be EDM. They're just like, 
it's pretty deliver, massive. They just deliver the music in like different ways. I wouldn't be surprised if like YouTube is another and SoundCloud and places like that that are just you know great great for delivering music that doesn't have to be an album format. You know, you can just hit play and it's you don't have to like pick tracks and you just let it go. Um, yeah. I also thought it was funny that the first time I ever heard the term years ago, uh, I was talking to a coworker and they're like, I'm really into EDM. I was like, what's that? It sounded so mysterious. I was like, what, what, what does that mean? Like ED gourmet. (laughs) (laughs) And and they, you know, they played it and I'm like, Oh, that's dance music. Like what, what am I missing here? Like, why did we have to come up with a new name for it? (laughs) Like, it didn't sound like that dramatically different that it was. Just just a bit of a re. A bit of a rebranding. <laughs> right, right. I was like, oh, this is dance music. Okay, cool. But I okay. mean, you know, it's weird for me as a person who I, I programmed a weekly uh, dance music specialty show for Waxy for the better part of a decade. And I had been listening to it since, you know, I was a teenager. Um, and so I've always loved dance music and electronic stuff, but I. You know, of course, I'm 41 now. Um, I am not finding as much of that current stuff. I mean, I I love pop music and and good dance stuff. But like in terms of some of those big, just like monster EDM acts right now, um, it's 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 not appealing to me uh, in the same way. All right, well, we're going to continue this conversation in our bonus content. If people want to uh, listen to a little bit more, they can head on over to Patreon. They can join us there. And here's some bonus content. But I think this is a good spot for us to wrap it up. We've covered 97, the peak of electronica music in the 90s. And I want to thank our guests from the Windy City, the Andy Dare podcast, the Andy Dare show. Mr. Andy Dare, thanks for coming back, Andy. Thanks, as always, for having me. I had a blast talking electronica. And from where it's warm down south... Where the uh, where the cold never snaps, it's uh, eighty degrees in the winter against God's <laughs> nature. Where the sea, there are no seasons. <laughs> there's there's eighty and a hundred. Yeah, I was there's, gonna say if we have them, there's just like two instead of four. Right, and apparently you have no um, gutters. I found out in talking to Jay <laughs> that uh, gutters are not needed in uh, in Texas. Well. That depends. <laughs> uh, Matt Shiverdecker, thank you for coming on. Finally, it's only taken seven years to get you on the podcast, and I, uh, I, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you were persistent, Tim. I appreciate. <laughs> it. Um, I want to remind everybody to uh, head on over to iTunes, leave us some positive feedback if you get a chance, and that's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Hey.